Welcome to Supercharge My Practice, a podcast dedicated to helping you build a thriving and fulfilling natural therapies business. Each week, your host, Anil Mustafa, interviews leading practitioners and field experts, sharing proven tactics, inspiring stories, and actionable steps that will help you unlock your potential. Supercharge My Practice is proudly brought to you by My Appointments Practice Management System. Welcome to episode number nine of the Supercharge My Practice podcast. Today, I have the incredible Carla Wren with me. She's an integrative naturopath, nutritionist, and herbalist, and she's the owner of the Peninsula Herbal Dispensary and Naturopathic Clinic on the beautiful Mornington Peninsula. She's also a sought-after presenter and mentor for, for practitioners, and she's also an avid learner, having recently completed postgraduate studies in integrative oncology, autoimmune diseases, and functional medicine. And most importantly, she's the mother of two. Welcome, Carla. Wonderful to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion because you've got a lot of expertise and a lot of experience. So I'd love to draw on that to help our fellow practitioners who are trying to build a business that they love. So we know that you graduated in 2001 and you bought the clinic in 2015, but I'd love to fill the gap there. So you've just graduated as a naturopath. How did you get from there to where you are today? Yeah, good question. So I um, yeah, graduated in 2001 and I was only about 21 at the time. So it was really important me, for me to figure out, okay, how are we going to get started? Because, you know, I felt like in college they were very much saying, oh, you're so young and you've got no life experience. And so in uh, my hometown in Mount Martha down here on the Mornington Peninsula, there was another practitioner uh, who was already practicing as a naturopath. And through like the health community down here, my mum saw a chiropractor who told that naturopath that I just graduated I was lucky enough to get a position in her clinic. And at the time, she was running a weight loss program. So she was a naturopath and an acupuncturist. And um, the weight loss program meant that people were coming in. They were signed up for the program and they'd come in. I think it was probably monthly maybe even fortnightly for a weigh-in um, and to have them um, be given some more protein powders and things like that. It was kind of a ketogenic-based program. And so I had the position of being able to do those um, in-between appointments. So she'd do the initial consultations and then I'd fill in for the in-between appointments until their finished appointment. So it was a really great uh, way to actually talk to real patients. You know, in college, there's a lot of framework around the people that you talk to and it might not be just you and them. So um, it kind of helped me cut my teeth a little bit. Um, so I did that for quite a while. And then I also worked in a um, health food store setting. So I think health food store settings are really interesting because you get to see just about everything. And we see it a lot like this in the dispensary as well. People will come in um, from, uh, you know, the, the hospital just coming back from having some terrible injury or they might have just had breast cancer surgery or they might have ringworm or their kid might have threadworm. You know, like there's a whole range of things. They might just be having a bad day and they need something for their bad day. And so I think it's like um, the opportunity to just learn so many different skills, even though um, in my heart, I feel like there's a lot of problems with underpaying of naturopaths in health food store settings. I do think the benefit for a practitioner is you really build up your skills to be able to um, do that kind of acute care prescriptions really quickly. And so I did that for a number of years and helped to manage and saw how hard it was to manage stock and all of those things. I had a home-based practice as well. Uh, so on my parents' property, there was like a separate building and I saw patients there for a while. Um, I worked in a day spa in Mornington. 
So I did lots of different things um, that kind of got me to the point where um, I was ready to practice. But in that time, I also got married and had my two kids and had four years off. And so I was like a stay-at-home mum for four years. And um, during that time, I realized I really missed what I was learning. I felt a bit like I was forgetting what I'd learned. And so I came to the herbal dispensary where Karen Jackson, who was a mature age student when I graduated in 2020 sorry, 2001, she was a mature age student and I bravely asked her, could I work for her? Um, Karen was quite an intimidating person on the outside. And so um, she was like, yeah, sure. So when I had quite a young baby, uh, I came back to just start doing acute care at, or came to back to work to start doing acute care uh, at the herbal dispensary. So that was an exciting time. Uh, and then after working there for a number of years, I built up a practice um, and when Karen said that she wanted to retire, uh, she offered the business to me first because, of course, it was her baby. She didn't have children and it literally was her baby. Uh, and she wanted to see that go on. And so I was really um, very happy to be offered the opportunity first. And my husband and I took a big leap um, to keep the dispensary. But pretty much that was because I had put so much work into building my practice that if I didn't buy it, I was concerned what might happen and what might change. And I wanted to be able to maintain my practice with all that work that I put in to, to grow it. Mm, excellent. So I want to touch on a couple of things that you just mentioned there. Yeah. Uh, first is your age. I know for me, I graduated when I was 19 and I was in clinical practice uh, as my therapist. And I remember those feelings of, you know, being so young and what do people perceive on the other end? And for the most part, I had no issues whatsoever, except for one woman who was going on and on about how incredible my treatment was. It's the only person who'd ever helped her. And then she kept pressing and pressing on my age. And finally, I couldn't hold it back anymore. And I told her and she disappeared. It's the only one time it ever happened, but we've yeah. literally gone from being the only practitioner she'd seen, physios, chiros, everyone, no one could help her. And I gave her relief within one treatment and she had a significant relief, but she literally disappeared out the door as soon as she found out my age, which I found fascinating. But I wanted to just touch on that because we do have yeah. a lot of new graduates that are, you know, coming out into the market that are quite young as you were and as I was when we first started practising. What, what was your perception of people seeing you knowing that you were young? Did you find that to be a little bit of a block for either you or them? Uh, maybe, but I probably wasn't that conscious of it. Like I've always had this mentality and I talk about this lots, like fake it to make it. I'm also six foot tall. So I feel like there's a bit of a power thing in that, in that perhaps they didn't look at me as some like, like, I don't know, insecure young person. I'm not sure. I just felt like I, I had so much to offer and I was really excited about what I had learned at college. And I think I always felt like I had people I could lean into in the early stages and still now it is um, some colleagues that I studied with. Um, so I felt like I always had people around me that were cheering me on. My family was also really cheering me on. I felt like what was probably actually more of a barrier for me was I grew up in a like picket fence style um, childhood. And I think it was um, alarming to me how much challenge other people had suffered. And I didn't feel like I could necessarily connect with that. Uh, and so sometimes that was where the barrier was for me. And I guess just uh, drawing on being um, empathetic and trying to be an active listener and um, use some of those skills that we, we learn at college was perhaps um, what I did to cope with that. But I never feel like barriers um, should be put up for age. And I would say to the young listeners, choose a niche of patients you feel comfortable with working with. And if you feel like, um, you know, you're 
peers in your similar age group or demographic are the ones that you connect with most, then maybe you choose a niche that's in that area. You know, it might be, um, you know, young, stressed, 20-somethings um, starting out in their corporate career might be an, an adrenal fatigue and that kind of thing is that, or we shouldn't call it that, but you know what I mean, <laughs> adrenal issues or fatigue issues um, might be the, the challenge that, that that patient group is facing and niche into that because then I think if you're not um, outside the zone that you already know, there's a less of an issue around age. And I think you just nailed it when you were talking about, you know, you trusted in your knowledge and uh, and you were confident in what you were doing because people out there are doing more than other practitioners who just because of confidence, you know, if you if you have that confidence in yourself, you can achieve so much more. So I think that's what it comes down to is that those blocks that we have come down to our own insecurities rather than the patients. But because we have those insecurities, we project them onto our patients as well. And I had a massive insecurity issue around my age because the chiropractor had drilled it into me, don't tell anyone your age, you know. So then I felt like it must be a big problem. So <laughs> And everyone wants to know your age, yeah. Exactly right. All right, so what do you think are the pivotal moments for you going from being a new graduate to where you are today? So you've obviously started working in the dispensary and you were growing your own naturopathic clinic there. So how did you get to that stage of being able to get a momentum with new patients coming to see you? Um, yeah, I guess I always have a couple of different theories like the, the fake it to make it one is a huge one for me. I'll come back to that in a minute. I also think you don't have to know everything, but you do have to know where to find it. So I think that's really relevant no matter whether you're in um, a health food store or in a clinic. I don't remember everything. In fact, I have a pretty terrible memory, but I always know where it is. So if um, I need information around interactions or high oxalate foods or um, a list of calcium foods other than dairy, I know where to find those things. So having resources at hand, um, whether it be on your laptop or um, literally when we graduated from college, we had like the concertina file, having the concertina file with all your resources alphabetically put in there, continue adding to those. And I also think continually learning, you know, um, my worst case scenario for a practitioner that I employ is that they have no interest in continuing to learn because I think um, even just in the time that I've been in our industry, our profession has grown so much and we have so much more to offer. Science has moved forward, but so is the understanding of herbs and things like functional medicine and our ability to access uh, pathology and the microbiome didn't really even exist when I was at college. We just thought the gut was part of everything, you know. And so if we don't keep learning, we can't um, can't feel confident in practice. And then I guess as far as what I did, um, I just kept plugging away on the same message, like find your message. My message is um, really around that there's always hope. I do lots of mentoring for practitioners. And in that first session, we talk about a number of things. One is the imposter syndrome and being authentically you. And I just always tried to be myself and um try and provide that authentic interaction with my patients and then also just thinking about how um, I can I can share my message and my message is that there's always hope no matter how complex the health complaint is if someone really sits down and tries and digs around and you know analyzes the case we can always find some options or solutions or referrals or whatever for for a patient so um, I took on the hard stuff and I you know literally wrote on my business card once I love the complex cases uh, Karen called me the scientific naturopath because we already had a naturopath here at the dispensary at the time that was using the vague machine as a bit more spiritual she did lots of flower essences so Karen would say to people that came into acute care or do you do you want like the 
like scientific naturopath or do you want um, the spiritual naturopath? And um, lots of people wanted the scientific naturopath. So when I had that and the complex cases, it was a way to say to people, if you haven't found any options before, why don't you give this a try? And and that there's always some hope. We can always find something. So I don't know, I just kind of grew through that messaging. And that's a great little niche to have as well because there are so many people, myself included, you know, I've got complex issues that I've been dealing with for such a long time. And if somebody said that to me, you know, that I deal with the complex stuff, then it's that in itself is a great niche as well. And I just yes. wanted to touch on the fact I absolutely love that. You don't have to know everything. You just need to know where to find it. It's a beautiful quote, and I hope that a lot of people will take a strong message from that. But I think it's also important for practitioners to know that no matter how little they think they know, they still know more than their patients. Totally, totally. And also they knew, I believe they knew more than um, practitioners like myself that graduated ages ago, because I think you new graduates, and I get to meet lots of them here through the dispensary, new graduates have the best, most up-to-date knowledge. They're almost like the new car model and I've got the old car model and I have to work really hard (laughs) to maintain um, what they already innately know. And so, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, new graduates have just all the, all the information and it probably does feel overwhelming. And I think the other thing about not having to know everything, but knowing where to find it is always to lean into the tech teams at the different supplement suppliers. So, um, you know, they are a great place to also ask and, you know, see if you don't know something, maybe they know it. And that's another place that you can add to those, you know, resources that you have, if you feel like you don't know what you're doing. Mm, Great. Now you did touch on mentoring. You do mentoring for practitioners. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that. And I'd love to know what kind of challenges do you see most of the practitioners who come to you for support? What kind of challenges do you see them uh, facing in clinical practice? Yeah, Yeah, cool. So um, I did a couple of different types of mentoring over time, but lately I've been doing a six-month mentoring, which was very insightful insightful for me um, because you kind of just do what you do and you know how you work and, you know, I have 11 naturopaths who I work with, so I kind of know how they work and um what I really learned is that we, we all just care so much about our patients, but we still have all of these insecurities behind that around, you know, sharing ourselves and are we doing the right thing and are we going to get caught at the supermarket with all the sweet treats in our trolley and <laughs> um, what if the patient's doctor doesn't like me and all of these things run through our head. And So we just have to really confidently project what we're asking our patients to do. And if that means you ask your patient to go home and you think about the case and you put that case together better so when they come back the next time or we you email them out you're confident about your case we just need to be confident because you're asking people to ingest something and if someone said oh, I don't know maybe you should take some CoQ10 that doesn't really make me want to take it so you know we want to confidently say this is what I expect a treatment to do this is my treatment plan uh, and um, with the mentoring I guess um, one of the other things aside from this lack of confidence and imposter syndrome is follow through. Um, not so much follow through with the patients, although I think that that's really important. If you say you're going to do something, you've got to do it because it's the easiest way to kill a relationship if you don't follow through. Um, but is follow through for yourself. So one of my biggest um, successes, I think, is that I just keep plugging along to get the big goals done and tick them off. And sometimes it takes you know, a week of intense work, or sometimes it takes six months of intense work. Sometimes it's taken a lifetime, but um, I keep doing it. And I think all too often, um, unfortunately, practitioners want to come out and have it easy. um, Mm -hmm. And it's just not easy. It takes work, but it gets better and builds and grows every day. And I don't know if you know, Mariana, um, Marianne Finesse, she owns Simple Clinic. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking to her the other day, and she was going on to me about how when she first started, she was available five days a week. Um, all hours. Mm -hmm. 
And I think as um, the world has changed and people want flexibility, if new graduates just want to offer two half days a week, it might not be enough. You know, you want to kind of be available and that's what we had to do in the beginning. And so just keep working at it and don't be afraid of that hard work because it can get easier as you go along and you can tailor it more as you go along. And I only work kind of four days in clinic now, but, um, you know, some pracs work much less um, and have great little practices too. So I think it's just um, keeping on keeping on even when it feels hard. Don't give up. Excellent. I love that. Now, obviously you're very confident. You've got proven expertise here, but do you ever have moments of self-doubt yourself or do you ever face any of those same challenges that some of your mentees might face? Oh, totally. Like, probably every day. I, I don't know. I just, some of the cases I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> um, how did they end up in my clinic room? Um, yeah, I think that there's lots of different variations of challenges. Sometimes like today I had three cases in a row. Um, one of the patients was really, um, two, two breast cancer patients in a row. One was really a challenging um, relationship where her partner had um, gambled away their finances. And so that was really challenging to talk to her about, you know, I can't immediately change that. The next one had been burgled and had all of her precious um, possessions had been stolen. And then the next patient was a patient that had uh, cancer as well, but had also had a very long complex health history with like kind of invisible illness. I talk about like that unknown uh, chronic disease and had also had gender reassignment surgery. So all of those hormones were in there as part of the picture. And like, these are the last three cases I had over two hours, you know? And so Sometimes it got to lunchtime and I have my colleague Kimberly next door and she's one of the ones I studied with way back um, in 1997 when we started studying. And um, I just was like, oh, my God, how's your morning been? She's like, I've had great simple cases. She sees peds, but sometimes they're complex cases too with ADHD and things like that. She was like, I've had a simple morning. I was like, oh, my God, this is what happened to me. And then we just have a moment of sharing. And I think that makes it easier when I feel overwhelmed is I do have 11 cracks around me where I can just go, oh, my God. And even if it's just one thing they say or one suggestion, sometimes that can turn it around and, and it means that you've got other people to rely on on those tricky times. So what about confidence? So uh, sort of those, you know, those moments of feeling like you've got that imposter syndrome or am I the right person to treat this patient? Do you have those kind of moments that we see? Yeah. Yeah, if I feel like I'm not the right person, like I'm first to say, I refer a lot of uh, patients on to other practitioners now. So uh, as an example, I suck at gut health. Like I, because I haven't maintained my um, training in gut health. I think that, you know, I'm not the best at reading, you know, all of the different microbial and other tests now. I can do a basic gut case, but if it starts to get too complicated, I didn't maintain my study in that area because that's not the area that I specialize in. And so I refer on. So I I guess instead of feeling insecure about it or like I have to go and learn the whole update of gut health, I will refer on. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then if I don't know the answer to a patient and I feel like it's in my wheelhouse, I'll just go and research and I'll literally say to the patient, you know, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do here. These are the kind of ideas I have. And I confidently tell them those ideas, but I want to go and have a think about it. Is that okay if I spend some time thinking about your case? And no patient ever says, no, don't do extra work thinking about my case. So I just own it and say like, this needs some extra work and, you know, some time with their blood tests or whatever else I want to think about. And patients, you know, respect that. They'd rather you say, I don't know, but I'll find out for you than just make it up. I absolutely agree with that. And I found that as well in my clinical practice is that I'll say, this is what I believe is going on, but I some time to research this a little bit more. And in every single one of those cases, 
the patients were so appreciative that you took that extra time to go out and research and really find the thing that worked for them. They appreciated that so much more rather than you, you know, floundering around and pretending you knew what you were doing. So I think it's really important for uh, practitioners to understand they don't have to have all the answers. They just have to, as you said, know where to find the answers or go looking for the answers, but they need to have the desire and the confidence to go out and look for those things so that they can give their patients the the best outcome. So I think that's really important as well. All right, so let's get more into the clinical stuff, uh, the practice business stuff, I should say. Patient acquisition and retention. So you said there's nine practitioners around you. I think mm-hmm. you've got nine naturopaths in your clinic or is there more? We've actually got 11 now, so it's grown. But some of them, so there's nine practicing yeah. um, in the clinic and then we also have extra ones who just do acute care. Mm-hmm. So um, we have some that just offer acute uh, care and some of those are just recent graduate students or even fourth-year students um, and then some naturopaths that just do acute care as well. Beautiful. And so what strategies do you utilise within your clinic to one, gain and two, retain clients? I think client retention is so important and most practitioners don't excel in this space. So I'd love to pick your brains on those two. Yeah. Okay. So let me give you a couple of tips. Firstly, the Peninsula Herbal Dispensary, it has a model that um, facilitates lots of patients. So we have acute care. So people come in, it's kind of like a green pharmacy. If you don't know much about acute care, um, it's, yeah, it's like a green pharmacy approach. So people come in and they say they've got a health problem, a bit like a health food store, but it's all naturopaths. You spend about five minutes listening to them um, and we'll prescribe an acute suggestion. And those acute suggestions are things that are appropriate over the counter. So we certainly wouldn't be giving out like St. John's Water Ginkgo or Sammy or anything like that over the counter. It's more like maybe a basic herb mix or a herb tea or a simple nutritional. And we say to the patients, this is, um, you know, acute support. If things don't get better, book an appointment so you can sit down with one of our naturopaths and they'll go over your whole case. Or if someone comes in and they're like, oh, I just want something for rheumatoid arthritis over the counter, we will say that's not really something that we work with over the counter because there can be lots of different things going on. Uh, And so we would recommend that you sit down with one of our uh, practitioners who will go over X, Y, Z. We might say your immune health, your pathology, your gut health, what you're eating, what your triggers are for your rheumatoid arthritis flares um, and make a specific plan for you. And that gets lots of patients because people haven't been given options. You know, the typical, if we use that rheumatoid arthritis patient, the typical response is go off to the rheumatologist where they'll probably give you pregnancy alone or whatever else. And then, you know, say this is your lot and it won't get any better. And so when they think there's options of things that they can um, take or do or eat to make themselves feel better, they're really keen on that. So we try and share the benefits of booking a consultation in that acute care setting. And so that gets lots of patients uh, coming through. Now, if you don't have a dispensary set up, you can do this in other ways. So it might be jumping on your local Facebook group. Uh, We have one here called Mornington Peninsula Mums, which we get lots and lots of business from. And how that looks is someone says, what can I do about um, my, I don't know, my toddler's got worms. What can I do? And you can just pop a little comment there and then mention that you practice and this is where they can find you. Or you might go to your local market and sell some herb teas. But in that opportunity of selling herb teas, you create connections with people that then might lead to you being able to book an appointment or you might go to Arthritis Australia um, meeting in your chapter, in your um, meeting, chapter meeting, whatever, in your area and ask to be a speaker, like don't just turn up if you don't have arthritis, um, ask to be a speaker and then tell them about all the things that we can offer. And so it's just getting the conversation started because I think the word naturopath or herbalist or nutritionist 
it's loaded with a whole lot of stuff that isn't actually what we do. And so then saying that you're a problem solver and you look at um, lifestyle and diet and you prescribe evidence-based supplements, you know, really entices people. So that's how we kind of get a lot of our business. Um, And then retention. So retention, I think the number one tip I heard years ago is make sure you tell people you want them to come back and why you want them to come back. Such a big one. (laughs) Because, yeah, Metagenics did this survey years ago, and I could be wrong. I always credit it to Metagenics, but it's so long ago that I heard this that I can't really remember who said it. But let's say Metagenics. They stood at the front of clinics and they asked them what was the one thing that they loved and what was the one thing that they liked and what were they confused by and what didn't they like. And the consistent answer was they didn't know when they were meant to come back, which is kind of ironic because we all know in our treatment plans when we think people come back, should come back, but we might be nervous to ask them to rebook. And so I think um, saying to patients, I would like to see you in this long because and, and in this next appointment we will do X, Y, Z, um, really strengthens that retention rate um, because if you just send them off with their herb mix and that, or whatever you're giving them and don't tell them when to come back, you're relying on them trying to make some kind of informed decisions which perhaps they don't have the skills to make to know when to come back like do they come back when they feel worse or if they feel better because if they feel better do they need to come back and also the fact that what we're offering isn't a one pill fix you know you've got to take teach them that okay you've come for rheumatoid arthritis and i'll help you with um, the pain or whatever the presenting concern is but there's other things going on behind that that we could work on so that you don't have to keep taking supplements and your presenting concern is gone mm-hmm. so I think just educating them about how uh, working with a naturopath works. Um, and then I guess two other little tips are always make sure that you talk about addressing their presenting complaint. Because if you went to the dentist and you wanted to have your teeth whitened, but the dentist never mentioned the teeth whitening and they just did a whole lot of stuff and they drilled holes and they filled things and they talked about braces or something and you left, you'd be feeling like, I just paid all that money and I don't even know that my teeth whitening was sorted. But if the dentist said, look, you got a whole lot of problems here and there's no point whitening your teeth until we fixed X, Y, Z. And then next appointment, when you come back, you're whitening your teeth, you're booking that next appointment. Mm. And so if we don't tell them and we don't address their presenting concern in some way, whether or not you're going to get rid of it now or get rid of it later, they're not coming back, you know, and so making sure you address that that concern is important. Um, and then I think the other thing is just having a way for them to communicate with you between appointments because I think if patients get confused and it's not easily um, clear how to contact you if they're confused or if they need a, a hand between times, two things happen. They might go elsewhere and take other things and I have some concerns about the safety of combining lots of different complementary and pharmaceutical medicines when people are just out there buying things. Um, and you also might lose them to somewhere else. So if you say, um, if you get a cold or a sniffle between times, get in touch, I might be able to show you how you can use your current supplements to um, help get rid of that cold. Or, you know, in our case, we've got acute care. So if it's a current patient, they can come in and get a little herb mix made up for their cold or whatever. Mm-hmm. So just think, making sure you show them how you're actually able to help with all of their health complaints. And if you can't immediately help, you can help direct them to another service that you think is a real quality service. And it just shows them that you're on their team and and builds that relationship and that connection, which is, I think, a lot about what people's buying decisions are at the moment, especially, you know, when the financial situation in some households might be changing at the moment. Mm, it's, yeah, some really good points there. I think also it's, it's very hard for practitioners, though, to allow clients to contact them between consultations as well because of that, uh, the 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 you know the overburdening of the practitioner having to spend so much time. So we'll touch totally. on 
in a moment. I do really appreciate that. Yeah. But I think it's important to highlight that sometimes it could be something very, very basic. You've prescribed something and the patient has reacted to that. If you, they don't know that in between consults they can shoot you a quick email, then they may drop off care purely because they think you've done something wrong. And it's the same for our tactile therapist listening as well. You know, as my therapist, if I've treated a patient and I've told them that they're going to be sore from the next day from the treatment and explained to them, sometimes they'll still pull up sore the next day and they think you've done something wrong. So if they had the opportunity to reach out and ask a question, you could put their mind at ease, which means they're going to show up for the next appointment. Only we have a, can I tell you about our really good way of dealing with this? Because we had, so during lockdown, because I'm in Melbourne, um, it was like as if we felt, this is probably not the case, but we had to joke about something. So we felt like all of our patients sat at home with nothing to do except email us. And we were getting hundreds of emails. It was just like diabolical. So while trying to homeschool and run a business and whatever, I was getting emails about, oh, I've started cooking sourdough and now I don't know if my gut's worse. Like, you know, all sorts of funny questions. And so we instituted something called the patient care coordinator. So this is a whole role at the dispensary. Um, And so patients don't email me anymore. They actually don't get my email address. They get the care email address. Um, And that's um, manned by two practitioners six days a week. And they respond back because if it's that you've had a reaction, you don't actually, the patient's had a reaction. You don't have to answer that question. That might be something that someone else could, could answer. Now, obviously I'm in a team of 11 and we're a bigger business, so we can afford to employ people to do this. But one sneaky thing that can happen is you can have an admin email address and say, please send all um, inquiries between appointments to the admin email address. Then make sure you have an auto responder on that saying we'll get to you whatever days of the week you get back to someone. And then you may or may not have a name like Sally, who is the admin, who is answering queries. Because if they see your name on it, they will 100% write back. Mm. But if it's Sally whoever Sally might be. And this might be, you might employ a student graduate or new graduate. You might employ, you know, your best mate who's a mum who stay at home and can just answer a few emails for you. If they don't think they're getting um, free and very specific advice, they won't keep emailing, but at least there's an avenue if something's gone wrong or they have a question to ask. Mm -hmm. So how our care coordinators would answer is they'd try and answer if they could, but if it was specific, they'll say, look, I'll um, get back to you. I'll speak to Carla and I'll get back to you about um, what's best to do here or what reaction could have happened or what she wants us to do. And it just cuts off that extra back and forward communication, which I agree is very overwhelming if you're a solo practitioner. And I think the other thing you can also do is if you're getting common questions from yeah. your patients is record a video, record, write a blog, um, put a podcast out there, whatever it is in a way that allows you to communicate those questions that you're repeatedly being asked. You then don't need to spend the time explaining it again. You can just say, I've covered that here on this social media post or in this blog or in this yeah. blog. Or Frequently on- asked questions on your website and on your prescription, literally have a link that says, if you have a question between appointments, visit our frequently asked question page and here's a link, you know, and exactly that's a great idea. Yeah. And so simple, so simple. Yeah. And I just want to go back to what you were mentioning about um, patients, uh, not telling patients to come back to see you. And I, I laughed at this because it seems so common sense, right, that you tell someone to come back in for a consultation. But the reason why practitioners don't do this is because of the fear of 
what the patient is going to say when they ask them to read books. So if you haven't listened, listeners, to episode number six, I believe it is, uh, I talk about a specific case where a patient had come to see me where this exact scenario had played out. So go listen to that one. But just as another example, my husband went to see a um, another practitioner and I, he had major knee issue. And I couldn't treat it. Nothing I was doing was working. So I said to him, go and see this person. And you saw that person and he got some relief. And I said, oh, when are you going back next? He said, I'm not. And I said, why not? He said, because he didn't tell me to come back. I said, oh, well, that that's on him. He shouldn't have done that. You need to go back to see him. He goes, no, no, he didn't tell me to come back to see him because he can't help me. And I said, did he tell you that he can't help you? He said, no. I said, so why yeah. do you think he can't help you? He said, because he didn't tell me to come back. Perfect and I think it's really example. powerful, right? It's, it's exactly yeah. that. If you don't tell the patient to come back, they're going to think, one, that you can't help them, two, that you don't know how to help them or you don't want to see them or that there's something wrong with the patient themselves. So it's really important. Just tell the patients what they need. Don't worry what they're going to think. Just do your job as a practitioner, tell them what they need and let them decide if they want to come back to see you. Totally. We have that in acute care too with, um, you know, especially with the cost of supplements going up at the moment, I think we try to be really mindful about how we represent our industry. And it's not like we don't want to just look like, oh, we're shelling out, you know, a hundred and something dollars worth of supplements over the counter in acute care. So we try and prioritize. Mm -hmm. And our acute care model is that we give one herb, one um, nutritional and a piece of lifestyle advice. But you know, for yourself, if you had a really bad flu, you're not going to just take vitamin C and echinacea. You're going to take a whole lot of things, but it's costly to give a whole lot of things. So we literally say to people, if this is enough, isn't enough to get you better, we have a whole lot of options, but come back if you need more. And they're like, sure. And they're not paying for that service. It's a free service. So they're more inclined to come back. And you see, when you tell them, they come back in and they say, oh, it's, I'm 50% better, but my ears are blocked. And then you can work on that. And it just shows that that, um, that that relationship or that situation is still open if you keep offering more. Mm. So I'm guessing your clinic obviously grows through the acute care consultations feeding into you know extended consultations with you. And I'm 100% certain that your practice grows just through word of mouth and referral from yeah. your existing patients because you've got the great model of care there where you're doing everything you can for your patients. They're getting results. They're going to refer, which is the best way to grow a practice. But do you actually have a set marketing strategy where you on this day, on this day, on this day, do that? Or do you fly by the seat of your pants like most of our practitioners do? Yeah, I I want to tell you, I do fly by the seat of my pants. Um, I do have we do have things in place that run. I, like I think one of the best things we did in our practice um, is on our website, we put find um, your best naturopath um, quest, questionnaire or quiz um, that helps people choose which practitioner from our business is best for them. Uh, and you could use this in other ways um, in your business and have different types of quizzes. What happens when someone fills that in is they get an email um, about the best potential practitioners for them with the booking links and all those things. And that has been really um, wonderful for growth. Uh, But um, I've done both. I've had like formalized full-time marketing personnel. And then I've had like the fly by the seat of the pants approach at the moment. I'm somewhere in between the two of them. Um, And that's basically because I think I find it hard to find people outside our industry that communicate the right messaging in the way that I like. Uh, and I'm a bit of a control freak around it. So um, you don't have to be formalized, um, but uh, if you if you like doing the socials, do it. If not, I think find someone that really understands your voice uh, and um, you know build a build a plan with them. Um, 
but I think it can always be improved and I uh, think we can definitely do it better, but we do what we do at the moment. Mm, It works for you, so that's the main thing. (laughs) Yeah. And what about socials? Let's touch on that. Do you maintain a social media presence for yourself personally? Uh, Yeah, my Instagram is just Carla Wren. I put a whole lot of random stuff up on there. I used to worry about it being pretty, but now I'm just like, you know, I'll post it if I want. I think if uh, my long COVID care um, Instagram page is a better example when you plan in advance and put the work in, it looks lovely and pretty. Um, I just, my one thing with socials that's been a real barrier for us is that it's very hard for us to measure the metrics with the current setup that we have at the dispensary. And so uh, when we were putting a lot of money into marketing, I actually couldn't see whether that was what was causing the growth or not. Uh, And so I think whatever you do and whatever you decide to do, you want to be able to get metrics around it. I talk in my mentoring a lot about sales funnels. And so our sales funnel with the quiz is very good. You can see it working and you can see who books because there is a whole funnel through. But if there's not a funnel, you know, how do you know if it's word of mouth or if it's the really expensive marketing agency that you've got and so whatever you decide to do especially if there's money involved um, or time involved try and measure it and make sure that it's actually doing something and that was the biggest challenge for us that made me put a stop to spending so much just because I couldn't measure it and I need um, to kind of re-establish a plan to ensure I can measure it to make sure it's worthwhile spending. That's really interesting. The last few podcast guests that I've interviewed, they're all going with the more what I would consider the old school approach. You know, that's focusing on patient care and building through referrals and the community opportunities. Whereas I don't know if you see this yourself, but so many practitioners are spending so much time and energy on socials, trying to make sure everything looks pretty and making sure that they've got these reels that are getting seen by lots of people. But what is the result of that? What is that actually doing for your practice? It takes so much time and energy, and that doesn't mean social media is not important, especially if you're growing a business. It's really important even just for search engine optimization to have a social media presence. But so many practitioners are spending so much time worrying about how perfect their Instagram grid's going to look and then forgetting about the message that comes behind that, which is what the patient's going to resonate with. Now, that doesn't mean you just go out there and you put things that look terrible. You want to put a little bit of effort into it. But to spend so much time perfecting everything, your patient's never going to know if you use Times New Roman or if you use Arial yes. or, you know, that yeah. this pixel is that little bit out or anything like that. It's just important to get a good message and a consistency out on your social media. Uh, but I really, you know, feel for those practitioners that are out there desperately putting themselves out there and feeling like they're getting knocked back because they're putting this information, but they're not getting a return. But you don't know that you're not getting a return because you can't actively measure social media the, the way you could through a website visit or a funnel totally. or something along yeah. those lines as well. Totally. And I think too, the the most important thing for socials is if someone says, hey, I went to this amazing naturopath and I think you should too, is they just and I saw this when I first ever made my website because I actually made it quite late into my practicing. And having Facebook or Insta or a website, it just means when that referral happens, they kind of get that second follow through and they can see what you're about and they can confirm what their friend said is right and then they confidently make the booking. So having something pretty there that shares who you work with and how you do it. Um, in mentoring, we do a lot around our ideal clients. So speaking to that ideal client about your values and offer and proposition, all those things. Just have that highlighted. But literally, I was spending $900 a week, um, plus my husband's a graphic designer, so that's a lot of free sweat labor I get there. Uh, on socials, making our socials really pretty, you can scroll back to the dispensary socials from 2021 and 2022 and see 
And then I just stopped this year. And that's a big spend. $900 is a lot of consults when you think about it that way. And I didn't think that nothing against the person that was doing the socials, they're fantastic. But I didn't think that the spend was warranted for the improved prettiness on our socials. Yeah, and for $900, you could have gone and got a community hall where you could have yeah. talk and got people to come where you would have had those interaction and the response rate from something like that is so much better. Yes. The connections, the response, the respect from patients is just on a whole other level and compared to somebody messaging you on Instagram who's thinking about seeing you. And, again, I want to highlight that I still think that's all very important, yes. but I think we're forgetting all of the old school methods that helped people like yourself and I who have been in practice for such a long time, they're the techniques that we use to build successful businesses. We didn't rely on all this stuff that takes so much time that isn't as measurable. So I think going back to those basics is so, so important. All right, so there's a lot of practitioners that are in part-time practice or we call them hobby practitioners because <laughs> they want to do this full-time but or even part-time but they cannot make a living out of the practice. What kind of advice do you have for people that are in that position and why do you think it is that there are so many practitioners you know, in that space where they really are struggling to grow a business to make an income from it? Yeah, look, I think there's a whole lot of reasons potentially. And I do think when you dilute your energy levels, having to work in two jobs, it can make it harder to have the oomph to get up and do the next stage. And I think, like I said, and like Marianne said, it is hard work. And if you're doing two things, I think it's sometimes hard to do that. As far as, um, you know, the next step, I would say and, and agree with like what you said about hiring the hall and it's it's getting out there. So perhaps if you're a practitioner and you feel like you're at a hobby level, um, plan, you know, I challenge you to plan between now and the end of the year um, or even into the end of January, what you can do to get out and build that community around you. And I think the funny thing about social media and particularly Instagram is like you feel like you've got a community because you've got a whole lot of followers. Um, I know with my uh, community, so many of them are practitioners voyeuristically watching and we love that, but it means they're not going to actually um, book in for an appointment necessarily. And so uh, when we go out there and I, I saw a really good example of it the other day, one of um, our local clinics, they had moved. It was a um, osteopathic clinic. They moved into a beautiful new premises and they invited all the local practitioners who already refer to them as well as a whole lot of new ones along. And um, we took our team of uh, probably about, nine of us went along and it was uh, just like a 6 p.m. kind of catch up, see their new clinic, hear what they do, communicate with other practitioners. And I think those kind of events, when you put them on, and you don't have to have a brand new clinic to do this. You could just invite people to a restaurant or um, the community hall, the library, whatever. You can rent little rooms in the library and just meet and talk about an interesting case and share with them what you do. And um, that build your business in spades comparing to just keeping on doing the same thing, which I do find, like you mentioned, is just throwing stuff at socials. And so I guess stepping boldly into uh, what you want to see your business like and not hanging back. And I think it's just also a bit of a leap um, that you have to take at some point. Mm, love that. The last question I've got for you and something I ask all my um, podcast interviews and that is, if you were to give just one piece of advice to natural healthcare practitioners aiming to build a successful business that they love, uh, what would it be? 
Uh, I am that passionate about what we have to offer. Like I think, and maybe this is a bit from my experience in functional medicine in um, the time that I studied that in the US, is we have that much to offer. Like we are game-changing people in our healthcare system in Australia. The chronic disease crisis statistics are appalling um, and without upsetting any potential medical uh, doctor listeners you might have, I think that they are doing an excellent job in the situation they're at, but they don't have the time um, or the ability to dig deep on people's health and perhaps unravel some of the complexity. And we do. Um, whether you're a body worker who spends time going through um, things in more detail or whether you're you know, a body worker that refers on to a naturopath or whether you're a nutritionist or a naturopath, just really back yourself because people need what we have. And then I guess the other tip is, and share that, share how you can help. Because if we don't tell people they don't really know what we do um and then the other bit is just remember like i said earlier you don't need to know everything you just need to know where to find it so um you know keep keep plugging on even if you feel overwhelmed and and step forward because there's so many patients out there jules galloway is another practitioner that i love and she did the calculations the other day about how many practitioners there are in australia and how many millions of people there are in australia and you know there's enough for all of us so just keep sharing your message and your passion I love that. Excellent. Uh, if people want to find any more about you, Carla, they can go to your website, which is Carla Wren, surname spelled W-R-E-N-N.com, and you can find you on Insta and Facebook as well, and all the information about your mentoring program can also be found on your website. It's wonderful to have you here, Carla. Thank, thank you for you your so time. Much. It's been a delight talking to you. Yeah, it was beautiful. Thank you, and thank you for sharing this podcast. I'm sure it's uh, really helpful to so many people. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today and I look forward to having you join me in the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with the latest releases and for more helpful tips, look for me on Instagram under the handle Practice. This podcast is proudly sponsored by my appointments.